Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Zach Pusillo, EHS Compliance Manager at KPA, about OSHA 300 reporting. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Zach Pusillo, EHS Compliance Manager for KPA, about OSHA 300 reporting. Welcome, Zach. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for being here. Um, before we get started, uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do with KPA. Yeah, sure. So I am the EHS Compliance Manager for KPA. Uh, basically, what I do for KPA is all the regulatory information that gets broadcasted out there by the regulatory agencies. My job is to try to navigate those waters of you know what they put out there in the actual Code of Federal Regulations and try to interpret all of that and put it into a form of text that all of our clientele can understand and really the general public as well too, uh, who is actually affected by a regulatory change. If there is a rules update, uh, what does this mean for a particular industry or set of clientele? Uh, KPA also has field consultants that go out and do work uh, with the clientele as well too on site. And so one of my roles is also to train our field consultants in regulatory matters and keep them abreast of what's new and maybe also try to interpret it, interpret some of those gray areas of regulations. Uh, so what actually applies to what industry and when it comes to maybe like a gray area, okay, maybe this certain subsection of regulations applies, but also it may not apply in certain situations as well too. Gotcha. So I've been, yeah, I've been doing this for about 16 years now. I was in the field as a consultant, um, earned my CSP uh, back in 2005, and then my CHMM back in uh, actually 2014. So, excellent. Well, let's talk about uh, OSHA 300 reports. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain what they are and why they're so important. Sure. Uh, so. The 300 reports, they're, they're a collection of reports that businesses use to track the amount of injuries and illnesses occurring at their particular establishment in like a given calendar year. So they're, they're really a part of OSHA's injury and illness record keeping rules. So it is a part of the code of federal regulations that business need to maintain these reports. In fact, it's 29 CFR 1904. If you go there, that's basically all about the OSHA 300 logs. So they affect businesses with 10 or more people um, or 10 or more employees. Uh, and it affects majority of businesses out there. They do make a partially exempt list. I won't get into that list, but uh, you can go into that 1904 to see if uh, an industry you might, might be working in is actually exempt from maintaining these logs. Uh, but the reports themselves consist of three forms. Uh, they're referred to as the OSHA 300, the OSHA 300A, and the 301. And just real briefly on each one, so Form 300, it requires you to account for each injury and illness that took place in the previous calendar year. Uh, so each injury or illness to an employee which meets the recordable criteria has got to be entered in on that form. And so we're listing out like the employee's name, actually what happened to them, and there's a line for each case throughout the year that would happen that would go on that 300 form. Mm -hmm. Then there's the 300A form, and so you take all the information from the 300, and the 300A is basically that summary of all that information on the 300. Uh, so it's going to basically show the number of 
days uh, that of lost time for a business in the previous calendar. The number of recordable cases as well, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then finally, there's the 301 form, and that's an individual account of the actual recordable case. Uh, so it, it's usually a separate form, and it's it's like a first report of injury for most businesses. They would probably interpret it that way. Uh, so that's where you're taking down all the actual specific details of the incident that occurred and logging on on that 301 form. Uh, so you actually don't have to use a 301 form. A lot of people don't understand that, though. Mm-hmm. As long as you have like a first report of injury form that... Um, as long as it has all the relevant information that the actual official 301 form has, you can use your own first report of injury form. So a lot of people work use like workers' comp uh, first report of injury forms for insurance purposes. Um, and we just basically, by the time this airs, which will be uh, next week, um, mm-hmm. deadline for 300, OSHA 300 reporting will be over. Um, mm-hmm. So what's uh, what is sort of the next step for businesses after they kind of hit that deadline? Sure. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to like go back and there are some businesses that do need to report electronically. I don't think a lot of people understand that still, mm-hmm. a lot of businesses. So really, if your business has currently, <laughs> if your business has more than 250 employees, uh, then you have to submit your information from your 300A form electronically to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They have a website set up to collect all this data. Also, another category is if your establishment has between 20 and 249 employees and on, you're on one of their high-risk industry lists, which, mm-hmm. once again, it's an appendix that they put out there. You can go uh, figure out if you're on that industry list. Then you also have to submit your information electronically. Uh, if you have less than 20 employees, you get to be exempt. Oh, okay. So, yep, we just hit that March 2nd deadline. And so hopefully if you were supposed to submit that information, you've already done so. <laughs> uh, but what do companies need to do or what should they do now? <clears throat> well, one thing I think... Um, is monitoring for the final rule update for the record keeping regulations. So OSHA does have a a proposed rule that's in the final rule making stage to update their uh, record keeping rules when it comes to electronic submissions. Uh, So what's going to change really is that businesses with 20 or more employees uh, still do not have to submit anything. I'm sorry, 20 or less employees do not have to submit anything. So, but if you're an establishment with 100 employees, then you're going to have to submit form 300, the 300 form, the 301, and 300A information on an annual basis. So, basically, what it comes down to is if you have an establishment with 100 or more employees, you have to check to see if you're on these high hazard lists. Mm-hmm. And then if you are on these high hazard lists, you're going to have to submit all the information from all of your forms, the 300, the 301, and the 300A. What it does is it removes that stipulation of the 250 employee requirement. So if you have more than 250 employees, you just have to see if you're on that high hazard list as to whether or not you actually need to do your reporting. Uh, other things that the that you should do as a business. Um, you got to still continue to post your 300A summary until April 30th. So the 300A form must be posted physically in or 
it could be electronically, but it has to be posted in an area where employees can actually go and access that information. Mm -hmm. So that should be between February 1st and April 30th. So that should remain to be posted. Uh, they need to maintain copies of their 300 forms. You have to maintain copies of that for five years. But probably most importantly, my suggestion is analyze the data from your logs. Right. So unless your logs are zero across the board, um, then improvements can be made in your safety program. So if you analyze the data from the OSHA 300 report, that's a lagging indicator, meaning that we are retroactively looking at information that's already happened. Let's see what we can do to get on the other side of that and be proactive. So you can use a lagging indicator to take a look at your safety programs, but also what you should do is take a look at it from the other side and okay let's be proactive and maybe measure a leading indicator now or set a leading indicator goal is what i like to call that um, for example let's say i worked with a facility one year and actually i'll go to an actual example <laughs> i did work with a facility one year and we were looking at the ocean 300 and noticed three of their recordable cases involved golf carts hmm. so like you know Simple golf carts that you find on a golf course. Well, this business had the golf carts to help transport customers around and also get employees around on the lot because they had a massive like parking lot area. And so they had three recordable cases involved with the golf carts. So as we looked at those, I made the suggestion that instead of making a goal to just decrease the amount of golf cart injuries in the next year, let's set a goal that involves like a leading indicator. So what we did was we came up with a key control program so that only authorized users could use the golf cart. Uh, we set up a process where the key would need to be signed out and back in. And the goal was to have 90 days of successful key control inspections. Uh, and so these authorized users would actually have to do key control inspections to ensure that the golf cart key was if it was ever logged out, it was also logged back in at the end of the day. And if the key was missing, they could go track down that person to make sure it was turned in. So as long as the golf cart key was uh, turned back in on each use, then the goal, basically the, it was a successful day. So the goal was to reach uh, authorized golf cart users turned in their key controls every day for 90 days with a successful completion rate. And if they did so, they would receive some kind of incentive. And I think it was, they all received basically a pizza party for lunch. So that's <laughs> an example of like taking the data from an OSHA 300, taking a look at the trends, and then putting in a leading indicator example measurement to try to be proactive. I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that data is out there. We yeah. got to actually take it and make it benefit us as a workplace. Yeah, obviously, if there's, you know, trends trends occurring where a lot of injuries are occurring in one, you know, particular area because of one thing, then uh, it makes sense to actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, what are some mistakes that employers make when it comes to uh, OSHA 300 reporting? Ooh, uh, we could probably go for an hour to cover those, but <laughs> I know we don't have that amount of time, but just I'll try to go off of some off the some top of, the of my big head. Ones, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, really, some of it just comes down to like, what do we what do we actually put on the log? What do we count? Uh, so like when counting days for lost time or days lost, um, so you don't count the date that the employee was actually injured on. A lot of people do do that. Uh, you actually have to start with the first day of lost time. 
another thing is is that a lot of uh, employers think that you only count work days when it comes to a recordable mm -hmm. case which isn't the case you have to actually count every potential day that the employee could have worked so that's going to include like your weekends going to include holidays even if the employee was looking to take a vacation the next week if there was a doctor's note that said that they have to be on uh, basically work restriction or loss or take days off for the next two weeks even if those two weeks were planned to be vacation um, you have to actually count those in the actual days lost um, some people also don't understand that there is a cap on how many days that you can actually put on so you might have an injury that maybe it happened to somebody that was a back injury and it just lingers on and on and on and you're almost up to a year that this employee has been out you can actually put a cap on that of 180 days uh, so you don't have to go the whole 365. Uh, a lot of people do also get confused on uh, when to count motor vehicle accidents in fact that usually comes up a lot when i host a webinar on the subject um, so if there's an accident in a motor vehicle, really OSHA kind of puts out there these three kind of criteria. So the injury must occur when the employee is commuting to or from work and not when traveling in the interest of the employer. And what I'm describing here is this is how, why when you don't count it. Right. So if they're in their commute, you don't count it. Um, the injury can't take place in the company parking lot or company access road. So as soon as they're on the company parking lot, they're at the establishment right that can be classified as work related and then the injury must result from a motor vehicle accident which you know if they were doing something else silly in the car or something like that then you got to take a look at that whole situation as whether or not that's a recordable case um, um, go ahead I, I yeah identifying establishment versus campus comes up a lot hmm. um, so you may have like an establishment that has four different buildings on site that is a campus uh, so actually the campus can you can do one osha 300 like reporting system or you could do one for each actual establishment uh, as long as they all the operations are over under the same similar type of operation uh, but if you have one building that does you know manufacturing but then you have a shipping department that might be just down the block really they should have their own separate OSHA 300 record keeping mm -hmm. and same thing with like geographical offices if we have an office in say Indianapolis and there is another office that's in Boston they should have their separate 300 forms you can't say that oh we're all into the same corporate umbrella we're just gonna do one right, right. they need to have their separate ones um, uh Good. I was gonna say, uh, are, did you have any more uh, mistakes, or were you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's um, more, right? There, there, there's more. Oh yeah. Right. So, we, if what this one came up recently, so if an injury occurs in one year and it carries over into the next year, do you count it on both years, or do you count it on one year? And so, really, what you do is. You, you only count it on the year in which the actual incident did occur. So say that somebody had an injury in December of 2022 and their lost time carried over into January of 2023. What you're going to do is only count that on the 2022 log. You're not going to actually put a new case uh, on the 2023 log for that. 
um, and then just understanding the differences between a recordable and a reportable case. I think people still mistaken that that they in some cases you have to actually report to OSHA what the actual case was. So um, recordable means it's work related and there was lost time usually, but a reportable case is when we have something that's a bit more tragic, unfortunately, but you actually have to pick up the phone or go to the internet and notify the OSHA area office that you had an actual reportable case. So reportable cases, we're talking a, a fatality, unfortunately, um, an inpatient hospitalization, an amputation, or a loss of an eye. Right. So if you have a fatality, you got to report that within eight hours. In, any of the other three within 24 hours of that occurring. And a lot of people get, you know, the inpatient hospitalization is the one that I've noticed in the past that people don't understand that you need to actually submit a report to OSHA on that. Um, I was at a working at a facility at one point where we were doing an accident investigation or pretty much a, a summary of what actually occurred in the last year. And we came across one where there was an employee that he was a maintenance employee. They informed him to go outside and tear down this old shed that was on the property. And it was a relatively hot day. And unfortunately, this uh, employee ended up having basically heat-related stroke while on site. Oh, and so they, of course, got medical attention involved, got him to the hospital. Uh, the employee turned out to be okay. But um, at, at that point, he was, of course, admitted into inpatient hospitalization. You know, we're talking how to get him rehydrated and basically stabilize him. And so as I came across that one, I saw, uh, you know, I asked a little bit more like, oh, was this potentially an inpatient hospitalization? And they said, yeah, yeah, he was there for about three days. And I said, you have to report that to OSHA. And so we were beyond the reporting deadline of the 24 hours, but I indicated to them, it's still, you still need to go ahead and report that. They did. Uh, it did trigger an investigation, uh, but the facility was doing well. They didn't have any citations except for just kind of a, hey, in the future, make sure that if anything like this happens again, you do actually report it to this within the deadlines. Um, so what does OSHA do with the reported information? Do they follow up on it if they find something troubling or how does that work? Yeah, what they'll do is they'll usually typically investigate through either a letter or a phone call or in some cases an investigation, an actual on-site one. Uh, in many cases, I've seen a letter actually be distributed to the facility and it said, okay, can you please describe for us the complete details of the incident and what did happen? And if it turns out to be like maybe there was a preconceived medical condition like um, this employee obviously had some heart conditions, ended up suffering from a heart attack, um, but it happened to be while he was at work or at that point, they're probably not going to investigate on that. I can't guarantee that, but uh, usually from what I've seen in my experience, they're not going to investigate much further on that. In some cases, though, they may actually go out and do an on-site inspection and they're going to take a look at the incident, the, the area where the incident did occur. Then at that point, they'll probably make a determination of whether they need to do a full on-site investigation of the complete safety programs of the facility. And then they could fine you if they find violations. Sure. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, we're talking the normal OSHA. Yep, 
yeah. it's a normal OSHA investigation at that point. So normally they're going to take a look at the area that it happened in, but at the same point, as they're taking a look around at the area, if they see anything else that could be a potential hazard, yeah, they could issue a citation for that. Or they could actually go into a full investigation mode where they're going to go down, you know, basically 29 CFR, 1910 or 26, depending on your industries and start taking a look at, okay, do you have this program? Do you have this program? Do you have this program? Um, typically they don't like to do that, but if they really feel like the work conditions contributed to a fatality, then more than likely they are gonna go down that path. Hmm. Um, if you're in a state that has a state OSHA, like like California, uh, are you, uh, does that, sort of, is that the one that you report to, or do you report to both state and federal? Uh, every state's a little bit different. Typically, you are going to report to the state version of the website, uh, but if you do not have a state version um, a reporting system, then you would have to go, definitely go to the federal portion of it. Uh, usually, the federal portion of it, if you do go to that one and you are trying to report, I believe it does ask you which state you're in. And if you are one of those state programs, I think it does redirect you to the actual state. Um, and what's the best way to stay on top of OSHA reporting requirements and changes? I mean, staying informed, of course, with just, you know, subscribing to different news channels that are out there is probably most important uh, staying up to date yourself uh, i mean obviously like you have uh, different news and uh, entities such as like ehs daily or kpa uh, that you can subscribe to newsletters on it that keep their readers and well informed about different regulation changes i mean you can also go straight to the source if you want to you know when is osha actually going to adopt that final rule of the electronic reporting I mean, they have a, a, a press room that they issue news releases upon. And at that point, you can go and sign up for newsletter subscriptions. You can also just kind of scan the website on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I personally, I set up Google Alerts. I was gonna, just going to say. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so basically, I set up a couple of Google Alerts like OSHA or if I'm monitoring something like the later on down the this year where i'm expecting the heat illness rules to come out right so i've got a google alert set up for heat illness anything that has those words in it automatically i get emailed notifications on those so it's probably one of the best ways to stay up to date because <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't also, uh, it yeah. doesn't you know they don't necessarily pass things very quickly i mean it just takes a while there's obviously no. commentary and and you know discussion mm -hmm. and all that and uh it drags out but you still want to be able to know when something's coming down the pike right exactly yeah yeah i mean there are websites such as like regulations.gov those are very difficult to kind of navigate those yeah. waters because any type of proposed regulation goes in there. And I would say what about 90% of those don't ever make it out <laughs> uh, uh, to the final rule on those. Um, they're just kind of bills that were proposed by different congressmen and women that uh, they, they, they might be something that were lobbied for or something like that, that they, they just never really make it to the actual final floor for final approvals. Or just something that doesn't have much support from yeah, know, everybody else. That as well, too. Yeah. Well, Zach, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today. This has been great. Yeah, I appreciate the time, as always. All right. That wraps up episode 148 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. 
You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. Thank you.